Dear listeners, I'm Jean-Frankie Guerrier, Jesuit, your host for the show Talking with Frankie. Today we'll continue with the series of episodes on the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican. In the last episode, we have welcomed His Eminence Thomas Collins, Cardinal Archbishop of Toronto, who talked about the ecclesial structure and governance of the Catholic Church. There could be no structure and governance without laws that regulate the functioning of an institution. So the Catholic Church as an institution has the code of canon law, which is the system of laws of legal principles made and enforced by the authorities of the Catholic Church to regulate its external organization and government. So today in this 15th episode of Talking with Frankie, I have the pleasure to welcome Father Michael Rosensky, Jesuit, canon lawyer, rector of the Regis Jesuit community to talk about the Second Vatican Council and post-conciliar canon law. A native of Niagara Peninsula, Father Michael Rosensky, known as Father Mike, entered the Society of Jesus in 1994 and was ordained to the priesthood in 2006. He has served as a teacher and chaplain at both of the Canadian Jesuit High School in Winnipeg and Montreal. He has also had short pastoral assignments in Jamaica, South Sudan, and at Lawyer Richard House in Guelph. Upon the completion of his PhD in canon law, Father Wozinski was assigned to St. Mark's Parish on the campus of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Currently, Father Wozinski works as professor of canon law and the sacraments and pastoral competency at Regis College, Toronto. Father Michael Rosensky, it's really an honor to receive you today in Southern Night Media, Toronto, and in the show, Talking with Frankie. How are you doing? I'm well, Frankie. Thanks for asking. I'm happy to be here today. Okay. So, Father Michael Rosensky, you have completed the first part of your studies in canon law at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome, Italy, then to the Faculty of Canon Law at St. Paul University at University of Ottawa, where you receive your PhD in canon law with a specialization in penal law. Can you talk about your experience of studying canon law and your different ministries in this field? I was very fortunate to, to study canon law at two different uh, universities. At the Gregorian University, many of the professors there, uh, were the majority of them were Jesuits, also had uh, roles and offered assistance to different dicasteries at the Vatican. So they're very familiar with how um, the Vatican uh, approaches canon law and practices canon law. But in addition to what I learned from the professors and the lectures, it was also wonderful to be there with uh, students from around the world, uh, students okay. from countless countries uh, and speaking numerous languages. And I learned almost as much from my fellow classmates and students as I did from the professors in terms of the life of the church and the all around the world and, and uh, as well as the practice of the law. Um, at St. Paul's, of course, doing or writing a doctoral thesis is a lot of research on a specific topic. It's less kind of global than the studies involved with the licentiate or the master's degree in canon law. But that also, of course, was very uh, enlightening and very enriching. And at that uh, thesis, I looked at penal laws in particular, I looked at dealing with uh, disciplined cases or cases of misconduct where the code of canon law is silent. 
So how do you deal with cases of misconduct where what the person did is clearly immoral, perhaps clearly a violation of the law, but not defined in the law as a crime? So in, in Rome, you had students from different places who were there to study canon law, right? They mostly diocesan priests, but also religious and lay people as well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what is the second cut of canon law, Father Mike Wozinski? And would you like to say something about the 1917 Code of Canon Law? Well, I can say that the, the first Code of Canon Law, or the Code of Canon Law in 1917, was the first time the church made an attempt to codify the law. The church, of course, has had a legal system for centuries, uh, going back even to the first millennia. Uh, but it was never, how can you say, it was never kind of regularized. It was kind of built up slowly by time, just by popes and different bishops and different synods of bishops passing different decrees, which is to say passing different laws. And all of these laws just kind of basically piling up over the centuries. And that essentially made it very, very difficult to practice the law because you needed to have knowledge of all of these decrees from different centuries and different contexts written by different uh, authorities in the church or enacted by different authorities in the church. So the 1917 code was the first attempt to try and say, let's systematize this. Let's make one system of law, put it in one book. Uh, it won't cover everything, but it will cover the essentials of the life of the church and we can organize that. So the 1917 code, in a sense, was the first draft. It made it drew upon many of those other decrees from the Middle Ages and from church history. It replicated a lot of those decrees, uh, left out on even more of them. But but it didn't come out of thin air. But it attempted to kind of organize the church's mind on these things. And then the 1983 code was a revision of that law based at that point, based in uh, all these decades of experience since the, the 17 code came into effect. And then also, of course, reflecting uh, the new teachings of the Second Vatican Council and updating uh, the, the practice of the law, updating the church's legal life in accordance with the teachings of the Second Vatican Council. This is interesting. Would you like to expand the differences between canon law and civil law, Father Mike? The, well, the big difference is, of course, countries and the church are occupied with different questions, occupied with different needs. So nations produce laws uh, to govern the things that are important to the, their citizens, to, to govern all aspects of the life of their citizens. And the church creates a law to govern the life of the church. But, of course, the church, the, the church is... Uh, primary concern in the law and in everything is the salvation of souls. Well, the law, canon law in particular, is meant, of course, towards the life of the church, the celebration of the sacraments, the organization of the church. Those are questions which, by and large, uh, civil laws would not be interested in. One of the things I always explain, though, if you were to take all the laws of Canada, uh, they would probably fill up a house like they're thousands upon thousands of pages, if not millions of pages of legislative texts, which govern the lives of Canadians. Right. The Code of Canon Law is the main part of law in the Catholic Church, but it's not all of it. But still, you could still fit all of the legislation governing the Catholic Church on one bookshelf. So in a sense, Canon Law is much more of a kind of a sketch, uh, a broad 
judicial plan. Uh, the canon law leaves much more to the discretion of the pastors, the bishops, the priests, the other leaders in the church, other ministers in the church, um, than does Canadian civil law. Canadian civil law or civil law for any country for that matter, into much greater detail and much greater kind of minutia in terms of this and that and what's a violation of the law, what isn't a violation of the law. In comparison, canon law is quite uh, is quite modest, is quite discreet in what it addresses. And in many times, canon law leads to civil authorities, uh, the legislation of things, so as to not replicate things. So for instance, canon law doesn't describe uh, what constitutes adoption of a child. They say basically, whatever the civil authorities say qualifies as the adoption of a child. We recognize that that is the adoption of a child. We're not gonna, we're not gonna replicate laws that every democracy is already going to have on the books. Right. So talking about differences between canon law and civil law, Father Ozensky, let's talk about some key issues and real application of the code of canon law. So my first question in this case, what is the role of canon law in promoting the values of justice and mercy in the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Again, so the code of canon law, the church, of course, lives and is expressed in many different ways. And canon law in particular has a care for the institutional expression of the church, how we're organized, how we live together in informal settings, informal structures. And, and in some sense, that can mean for some people, some people therefore dislike canon law because they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to emphasize the institutional side of the church. They want to emphasize the spiritual or the pastoral side of the church, the more dynamic side of the church. Uh, and some people are kind of embarrassed about even the church, Catholic church, having a legal system. Rather, somehow it, it could skip over that. But certainly, certainly experience shows that law is an essential part of the life of the church. But having said that, the law also has to support the spiritual lives of the faithful. And one of the key ways it, it does that is through promoting and legislating for the sacraments and the life of the church, for providing for the rights of the faithful in the church, the rights of everyone in the church, but in particular, the lay faithful. And always kind of reminding people that the salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church, which is the, the very last words of the entire uh, code of canon law, canon 1752. Those are the very last words of the entire code. The salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church. And that's what we, any canonist must always kind of keep in mind in their practice of the law, that we don't, we don't point to canon law just for the sake of upholding the law. We don't, so we, we don't point to canon law for the sake of being kind of strict or formal or saying we have to follow the rules because rules are important. No, we follow the rules and we follow the law because uh, it's helpful to people's salvation. It's helpful to people's growth in the spirit. Uh, it's helped to, to, to blessing and helping the life of the church, uh, not just because they're uh, something uh, magical about these laws and we have to follow them blindly. Yeah. Father Ozinski, you talk about salvation of souls. How does canon law pretend to achieve this mission in today's society? Well, it's a good question. I wouldn't necessarily say that canon law has its goal to achieve this mission, but right. to support this mission, mm -hmm. more to support this mission than in a sense a nice image for the code of canon law is, as, as Jesus uses um, the parable of the vineyard, where you have the wall and you build the wall around the vineyard to protect the vineyard. 
Right. Uh, and in a sense, canon law is kind of that structure to support the life of the church. But canon law, certainly, even as a canonist, canon law is not the be all and end all of the life of the church. Um, the gospel uh, is, is what is essential uh, to, to promoting the life of the church, to sharing the faith. Um, experiences of Christ in prayer uh, are essential to individuals appropriating the faith. Worship in the community settings, in the church settings, are essentials to growth in the spirit and to, to taking on the person of Christ and sharing that with others. And the law is, is meant to support that and assist that. The law is there to prevent abuses, to prevent uh, people from exceeding their authority, or to prevent people from violating the rights of other people. But the law is, in that sense, it's, it does promote the faith, of course, but it's also probably more protective in terms of protecting the faith and protecting the faithful and the church's values than it is about promoting the faith. Like a, a missionary going to a new country to people who've never heard of, of Jesus, he's probably not going to start by teaching them about the code of canon law. Right. It's not, not where you start. That's yeah. not the beginning of the life of the church. That It's important in the life of the church, but that comes later. It has a supporting role. It's not the kind of primary vehicle for promoting the faith and promoting the gospel. Yeah. And Father Ozenski, you mentioned the word abuse, and we know today the sexual abuse is a real crisis in today's church. What does canon law have to say about the sexual abuse of minors? Some people say that sexual abuse crisis in the church is a failure of canon law. Is that a fair statement? That's it's an excellent question. Uh, no, I would not say it's a fair statement. Um, sadly, one of, one of my jobs, in addition to teaching canon law and working within the, the Jesuit community, um, is, is to help the Jesuits respond to cases of abuse in our religious uh, order here in Canada. Thanks be to God, most of those cases are historical. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many cases we're called on to respond to at the present moment. And what I can say is that the, the, the law itself has always been clear about the sexual abuse of minors, and it has been a crime in the church to abuse a minor for centuries. That is certainly not a new crime in the church. It has been on the books for many, many centuries. What happened though, there, were, there, were, there was an issue following the kind of Second Vatican Council. So as, we, as, uh, as you may know, as I'm sure you know, but I'm not sure if your readers would know, Code of Canon Law came into being, the 83 Code came into being, uh, Pope John XXIII called for its revision. On the very same day, he announced the, uh, the calling of the Second Vatican Council. So that was in 1959, the new code didn't come up to 83. Um, like about 20 years, right? Exactly, about 20 years. So the council finished in 1965, but it was still more than, more than 15 years, 18 years before the, the new code came into effect after the council finished. In that time, lots of things changed in the church and in society in general, in the Western world. There was the old code, the 1917 code was still in, in effect until the 83 code came into place. But at the same time, people knew that many parts of the 1917 code had been abrogated or had been changed or modified by decrees of the Second Vatican Council. But it wasn't entirely clear yet because the new code hadn't been produced what took precedent over what and what of the old law still stood and what changed. 
Also, one of the big things that did change in the life of the church at that time was uh, an increased desire in terms of kind of the church being more, much more pastoral, less judicial, less, less concerned about laws and rules and regulation. And especially what happened in the 1970s was a desire to respond to cases of abuses of minors as pastoral cases. And as saying, well, father did this because uh, he's sick, because father has a, a psychological illness and we, we're not gonna worry about uh, you know, kicking him out of the priesthood or punishing him. We wanna heal him. We wanna bring him to you know, wholeness and we wanna kind of you know, solve this psychological problem. And that's why he abused these children was because he has the psychological problem or he has an addiction problem. Those intentions were noble, um, but uh, we didn't yet in the 1970s fully understand that certainly pedophilia is a, is a psychiatric illness, but it's also incurable. And there's no medication and there's no therapy and there's no kind of treatment anyone has yet to discover which can cure someone of pedophilia. Something they didn't fully understand in the 1970s. They was understood by the early 1980s, 19, mid 80s, that became clear that pedophilia is not curable, but there's still persisted this desire to kind of not deal with the law. Again, the 83 code hadn't come into force yet. Might, there might've been confusion about how to apply penal law in these cases. There was certainly a desire to kind of treat them more kind of pastorally, but sadly, History has shown us that many of those priests who had abused minors uh, and who were kind of presented with a pastoral approach were offered therapy and things like this. Sadly, many of them went on to abuse other children. Um, so I would say the sexual abuse crisis in the church, which is definitely real and which is not yet finished, uh, is not is not a failure of canon law per se, but I'd say it was a failure to follow canon law. It was a failure to kind of make use of this very important uh, tool in the toolbox in the life of the church, in the, li in the lives of pastors. Because there, you know, not all abuse is the same. Not every act of misconduct is the same, but there are certainly are plenty of cases when and I would say basically when a priest has, has abused, sexually abused a minor, basically he should never be permitted to function again as a priest. And in the past, sadly, there were some bishops and religious superiors who made that decision to readmit uh, priests to ministry who had abused minors because they had this mistaken idea that, oh, he's gone through therapy. Right. He's been healed and, uh, and he's kind of overcome this. And, in some cases that was true, but in many cases, these priests went on to abuse other children. Um, you know, Pope, mercy is important, but so is justice. You know, uh, Pope Benedict made very clear uh, when he said that, you know, uh, God's mercy, God's mercy does not mean we don't also practice God's justice. And it doesn't mean we take a pass in kind of following the church's very clear judicial procedures about how to respond to these cases. I can say now that um, it's very clear in the church's practices now that every uh, possible case of abuse of a minor, so every case where there's even a suspicion mm -hmm. uh, that a, a minor has been abused, 
the local authority, whether that's the bishop or the religious superior, is supposed to do a preliminary investigation. And right from the start, at the end of that preliminary investigation, that's supposed to be sent to the Vatican. And the Vatican okay. will be informed about every possible, possible case of the abuse of a minor from the beginning. And then the Vatican today oversees all of the canonical procedures of every possible case of the abuse of a minor. Certainly that didn't always happen in the 1970s and 80s, um, but the church has, has become much more clear about the importance of canon law and clear mm -hmm. about the importance of following these rules uh, vigorously and not kind of short-circuiting them by saying, well, we'll take a pastoral approach. We'll send father for therapy instead of uh, for a judicial procedure. Right. And Father Michael Rosensky, the new code, which is the 1983, was to give practical effect of the theological insights of the Second Vatican Council. How does the Second Court really help for a better understanding of the teaching of the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican? That's a, that's a great question. Again, I would say, you know, the code is not, uh, the code is not the catechism. The code is not a substitute for uh, some summary teaching of the, the documents, the decrees of the Second Vatican Council. But certainly it is an expression of them. And, you know, ways in which we see the, the, the new teachings of the council kind of manifested in the code, one of the clear ways would be is the recognition of uh, Protestants and Orthodox Christians as fellow Christians uh, uh, to recognize their baptism as true baptism and to recognize, you know, so that's, that's for instance, that's, a, that's something you see in, in the code uh, is the difference between, you know, the faithful, which includes Protestants and the Orthodox, means all the baptized, and, you know, and Catholic faithful. So to, to make clear which was, which was a novelty, which was a change with Vatican II, to recognize before that we, we didn't, we, the, the usual term to refer to Protestants before the Second Vatican Council was as heretics, uh, or, and for the Orthodox, schismatics, you know, people who had broken, uh, broken uh, union with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Um, you know, you don't see any language like that, of course, in the 83 code. And you see a recognition uh, of these other Christian churches and Christian communities. And you recognize that the church also doesn't try to legislate for those churches. So for instance, in a mixed marriage, a mi marriage between a Catholic and a Protestant in the old code, if it happened at all, and it was much rarer before Second Vatican Council, even the Protestant spouse had to promise, had to promise to raise their children Catholic. Whereas in the 83 code, the Catholic church no longer makes that demand of the Protestant spouse or the Orthodox spouse. Um, it does make that requirement of the Catholic spouse. All that it says is that the Protestant spouse, the Orthodox spouse should be aware of the commitment of the Catholic spouse to raise those children as Catholics. Because the, the, the newer understanding of the church would say, it's not our place to legislate for Protestants. It's not right. the Catholic church's place to legislate for Orthodox. They have their own law. They have their own legitimate traditions. The Catholic church would say at times, the code of canon law reflects divine law. So they would say, well, that binds Catholic Protestants and Orthodox. It also binds atheists and it binds people who don't believe in Jesus or God at all. But it's because it's divine law. So 
one of the important things to understand about the Code of Kennel Law is that not every canon is created equally. Not every canon in, in the Code of Kennel Law is of equal authority, equal value. Um, there, some of them are ecclesiastical laws, which are to say they're laws that were created by the church at some point for the life and the discipline of the church. Those canons can be modified and changed over time. They can be dispensed from in certain circumstances, which is to say the bishop or the pope can decide not to apply that law in a certain circumstance. Those are ecclesiastical laws. That can't happen with divine laws. Divine laws, of course, are immutable. They can't be changed and they can't be dispensed from. And in the code of canon law, you'll have ecclesiastical laws and a divine laws kind of put in the code side by side. So it's important when we understand uh, canon law to know the difference between what's an ecclesiastical law, what's a divine law. Right. So when you were talking about the changes in the church, I'm sure you mentioned it. So I would like to emphasize it a bit. With Vatican II, there is a shift from the model of the church as a perfect society to a vision of the church as people of God. So a community in which all possess the sacramental mission to live and proclaim the good news. Now my question, Father Michael Ozensky, how does that vision of church affect the legislative structure of the universal church? That's a great question. Again, in, this, in the 1983 code, you see many more canons devoted to the rights of the faithful and the rights of the laity. And they're describing their role in the life of the church, describing their ability to engage with the hierarchy and to make their contributions to the life of the church um, in a way that the 1917 code didn't describe in any great detail, touched on it broadly, but it didn't kind of describe it. But in the, in the new code of canon law, the 1983 code of canon law, you'll see canons about of the rights of the faithful to engage in the apostolate, which is to say to do works of charity, rights of the faithful to make associations of the faithful, uh, to pursue their own uh, spiritual needs, desires. Um, you have canons about the rights of the faithful to uh, receive the sacraments and to ask for the pastoral assistance, the pastoral support of the pastors, the, the ministers of the church. You even have uh, uh, canons that talk about how experts in the church have the right and even the duty to make known to leaders in the church their areas of expertise and perhaps areas in which uh, pastors need to pay kind of closer attention to their duties. Um, that it, there's even kind of an allowance there basically for the, for the faithful who have that expertise to make their desires known to pastors and even perhaps even to ask a type of a type of correction in terms of inviting the pastors to be more attentive to something that they perhaps have previously overlooked. And all of that is outlined in the code. All of that is, is there in a much clearer, more robust way in the 83 code than was the case in the 1917 code. Right. Any final thoughts, Father Osensky? I would say to go back to the whole issue of the sexual abuse crisis, in a sense, I'd say the sexual abuse crisis has helped the church to recover an importance, a sense of the importance of canon law. As I said, following the Second Vatican Council, and I think part of that was fed because of the, uh, because of the long time it took to uh, enact the new law following the closing of the Second Vatican Council, there, were, there arose a kind of an anti-juridical mentality in the church. People, Catholics became, many of them became kind of anti-canon law, 
anti-law. They kind of poo-pooed this kind of emphasis on the, the institutional life of the church and rules and especially punishments. People didn't like the idea of punishments and they didn't like the idea of the Catholic church establishing punishments. Mm-hmm. Following the sexual abuse crisis, people began to recover a sense that, oh, actually punishments have their place. And sadly, sometimes a punishment, uh, especially a punishment which is gonna protect children from future harm is very important. And just kind of being nice and kind of presuming everybody else is nice and that everybody else would never harm anybody. It might be nice to think that way, but it's not realistic. Um, and that canon law is there kind of uh, to, to help with those kind of difficult moments in the life of the church, those difficult questions in the life of the church. It's there to protect the rights of the faithful. It's there to preserve a kind of uh, institutional memory of best practices and of good practices related to the life of the church and the history to help hopefully help us to keep from making the same mistakes over and over again. But it's also there to protect those most uh, in need, those on the margins, those who are most vulnerable uh, against uh, those who would seek to exploit their power or their position in the church. Thank you, Father Michael Ozensky. This 15th episode is the last episode of the Vatican II series. You can listen to the other episodes of Talking with Frankie and to the Vatican II series by subscribing to the show on Spotify, iTunes Music, certainline.org, and our Facebook page, Talking with Frankie. In spite of today's difficulties, the show Talking with Frankie and Certainline Media Toronto wishing you a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year 2021. Many blessings. Bye-bye.